Hey, Jude, don't be a kook. Avoid those false teachers and prophets. Remember to kick them out of your church. Then you can start to make it better. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Daily Gospel. I'm sorry you had to hear that. (laughs) Best intro ever. It is. You can tell we're getting very close to the end of New Testament. Well, that was episode 101. Yeah. But let me remind you. We've been in this room for the last two years just making these videos. Yep. We just locked locked away. That's what our church did to us. Well, thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name's Keith. Um, Great musician. This is Brandon. We're both pastors here at Gospel Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. Welcome, like, subscribe, comments, and share me on um, whatever, um, you know, singing American competition. Idol. Yeah, exactly. Is that the whole thing? One of those things. I probably America's not. Got Talent. Yeah. Top one model. One of those things. Just find me a way to make a lot of money with my voice. Yeah. Yep. That'd yeah. be good. That'd be good. Well, we are tackling the last books of the New Testament before we get to Revelation, the final book, the dun, big... Dun, dun. Yes, it's going to be good, too. Um, so much to cover in that. And so the last four weeks of this year, the entire month of December, will be Revelation. <laughs> so Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Jesus is coming The Lord is coming back. Yeah. With a sword. <laughs> and, a, and a bloody yeah. cloak oh, and yeah. a horse. It's going to be great. It's good. Yeah, so we are covering Jude. We're also covering 2nd and 3rd John, shortest books in the New Testament. So shortest I think 2nd John is trivia, right? Shortest book in yep. the New Testament. Shortest book in the Old Testament is uh, wow. Malachi. No, 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 no. Obadiah. Dang it! Right, I believe so. Well, that's well, the that's the one chapter. One. We'll have to fact check yeah. that one. Put a little yeah, fact check me. Blue check marks. Get it. You can fact check right now. But yeah, um, <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah the internet webs. Don't 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 correct me, yo. Second, so let's talk about Second John while he's looking up how correct I am here. You were um, right. I was right. Sweet. Yes. Yes. Um, so second and third John were written by the Apostle John. So we so we kind of talked about that in first John. I mean, there's not much to it. It's it's pretty widely accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it's a, a letter. So it's first second John is, is a letter that is written. We have an, a, a person it's addressed to. So verse one, it says, "The elder to the elect lady and her children." whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who love the truth. So it's a very interesting language here. Like, mm-hmm. who's this lady? Who are her kids? And yeah. why does everyone love her who's a believer in Jesus? It's kind of weird. It seems like the most obvious answer to this is that it's a church. Mm. It's his way of metaphorically speaking about a church. Mm. Elect lady, right? We are elect people. So this is a lady, her children, with the members of the church. The bride of the You know, John Christ. uses some confusing... He's kind of like the Yoda... Of the New Testament, sometimes <laughs> he kind of says things. You're like, "What?" He's like forward and backward and stuff. Um, so it's sometimes confusing, but this seems to be the the idea here. So it's a, it's a church, and verse 13 seems to indicate this. He says, "The children of your elect sister greet you." Uh, so is John with another lady and lady, just kids? Sister. And well, no, it seems to be the church that he's at currently are greeting them. Makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. I think makes sense. Um, now, why was this book written? It was written, again, to warn against false teachers, mm. and specifically those traveling around 
speaking at different churches about Christ and kind of, you know, taking advantage of the young church of Christ. Yeah. So he's warning them against them and giving them some some commandments and, you know, how to deal with people like this. Hmm. So it's a it's a pretty intense letter. Not as intense as Jude. We'll get to that, but mm-hmm. let's just jump in. I want to spend the bulk of our time in Jude if we can, but let's a quick run through of these books will help. So we see the elect lady in verse one. Yep. We see the, the truth mentioned three times in the very beginning here. Um, so he's really hammering on that. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, a big part of John's writing is about the truth. Verse four, he says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, mm-hmm. just as we were commanded by the Father. So walk in the truth, live in the truth. So there's a pattern of life that's based on the truth of God. And so obviously, the obvious implication is if you go against the truth, you're going to destroy people, right? right? So he says, um, now I ask you, verse 5, dear lady, not as though I'm writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that you love one another. So this is a big drum that John has been beating on since his first book, mm-hmm. right, the Gospel of John. So, And th- this is love, verse 6, that we walk according to his commandments. So again, the same theme as First John. Verse 7, though, is kind of a transition it says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Hmm. So the, the early heresies of the church, okay, so I, you know, that book, Da Vinci Code, great that, was, that like everyone, great, mo- great movie. Everyone thought, I don't know, I feel like when that came out, everyone was like, oh my goodness, like this is the greatest challenge of the Christian faith ever. We have to all write books about it. It, it was a novel. I don't know if people were necessarily convinced by that novel, um, but maybe they were, that that Jesus was the offspring, or no, that Jesus had a baby or something. I forget. But the whole idea was, the, the they would say is the early church heresies were, basically the early church made Jesus God. So everyone knew Jesus wasn't God, but then 300 years along, Constantine is like, hey, it'd be really helpful if Jesus was God. Right. And so he changes the story of like a good teacher who was just a normal guy, who died for as an example, and instead he becomes God. Yeah. But the, the the evidence in the early church is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, it's just it, like gaslighting. Yeah, well, it yeah. wasn't. The, no one in the earliest heresies, no one was saying, well, Jesus clearly isn't God. Right, he's just yeah. a human. They were saying the opposite. Right. They're saying, yeah, Jesus is God, and he's he not, not human. Yeah, yeah. He just appears to be human. He just kind of takes a, a form of man, a man, but he's not really human, all that kind of stuff. Those were all the earliest church heresies. Right. So... Jesus being God was taken for granted. It wasn't until much later people started to say maybe he wasn't God. Sounds like right? an entertaining novel made to make money. It does sound like that. Yeah, hmm. yeah, and a yeah, a film that is kind of weird. But I never saw the film. Actually, kind of, it's basically just like yeah. National Treasure, but a little more sophisticated. <laughs> I think Dan Brown, because I read his, I read his book Inferno too. I think Dan Brown goes on vacation in exotic locations. <laughs> and takes all the tours and then writes a book about Most it of those writers. and writes off all the expenses <laughs> yeah, exactly. from the trip. He's like, this is a trip for my book. <laughs> and I make millions yeah. of dollars off it. Not relevant to Second John at all. But but so, yeah, he's <laughs> saying, no, Jesus came in the flesh. He was truly man. Mm-hmm. He was God in flesh. He was God, the God man. Mm-hmm. And so that's crucial to this doctrine. So some of these people are coming apparently denying that. And he's warning them against this. And then he says in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Forever greets he, greets him takes part in his wicked works. You know, there's a funny, there's a story that I, I, I read in one of the books I was reading in preparation for this about John 
seeing one time, uh, he was in a building and he saw a heretic. I think it was, uh, it starts with a C, I forget it right now, what, what the name is. But he sees this heretic in a building and he runs out of the building. And when people you know, ask him, he's basically like, I didn't want to. I don't want to be near when God destroyed him, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that may be an apocryphal story, but it's a good reminder to take these things seriously. Right. And so much of Christianity today seems to be about making peace with people who deny central doctrines of Christianity. Yeah, We, we really want to be at peace. I, I want to be at peace. I want everyone to be my friend. I want to be buddies with everybody. That'd be great. But the reality is, according to the New Testament, we see that there are certain people that we should actually avoid. We should not go near them. We should not associate Christianity with them, our church or our ministry with them. The whole Bible speaks to a truth like that. Yeah. Israel separate. Yeah. Yeah. There's tons of prophets in Israel. And God was not saying, oh, false prophets, true prophets, just get along, everybody. He was saying, no, be unified in truth. Yeah. As as Martin Luther said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. costs. So that's how we should see this. So maybe that was an apocryphal story of John, but I like it. I like it. The point point received. It's good. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna add that in here. <laughs> so don't avoid non-believers. That's not what he's saying. He's saying avoid those who take the name of God in vain, claiming to be believers, and yet deny him and teach a false gospel. Avoid those people. Yeah. Let's go to third John. Third John. So third John is written to a man named Gaius. Chapter 1, or there's only one chapter, so verse (laughs) 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And Gaius is also a metaphor for a church. No, I'm just kidding. Gaius was probably a real person, right? So it doesn't seem to be a metaphor here. This was Gaius was a super common name at the time, so we can't be sure who it was written to. There's actually three people named Gaius in the New Testament, aside from this reference. Are you going to name your son, next son, Gaius? No, I'm 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 good. I'm good. I'm gonna pass on that one. But I was just reading. You know, I'm just preparing for my sermons in First Corinthians, and First Corinthians one. There's he says that he baptized Gaius. Hmm. So there's this a common name back then. So it's hard to know who this is. Mm-hmm. So we could speculate rather than speculate. Just Gaius is a very common name. It's just it's kind of like the name John today, right? <laughs> we have a lot of people named John. So the purpose of Third John seems to be to warn against a specific person named Diotrephes. Diotrephes. So that seems to be verse 9, he comes up. And so there seems to be a personal letter here. Same kind of general theme of false teachers and the avoiding of certain people and being careful about certain people and uh, as Second John. So Gaius seems to be, as we get into the text here, Gaius seems to be a hospitable guy. Verse 5, he says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. So he's welcoming people in. He's supporting missionaries, seems mm-hmm. to be the idea. Verse 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Mm-hmm. So he's been welcoming these people in, caring for them, and John doesn't want to discourage that. He's saying it's a good thing to support missionaries. Yeah, It's a good thing to care for those that are in need and that are doing this amazing work. Mm-hmm. And so the, everyone in the church is going to either be a missionary of some sort or a supporter of a missionary or both. Yeah. Right? I think, you know, the P- Apostle Paul was working hard to support his own ministry and to be able to give to others. Um, so it's not necessarily one or the other, but it's, you know, it's it's easy to, th- to think, though, that because there's some crooks 
in the midst of missionaries or pastors that everyone should be discounted. Hmm. So John's saying, don't do that. Yeah. Don't throw away everyone. Keep doing what you're doing, but I want you to think in the right way. Yeah. And I, and it's funny. I think it seems to me sometimes like the church is the only area where we do this, where we say, I had a bad experience in the church, so I'm not going to go to church anymore. Because <laughs> I've had a lot of bad experiences with doctors. I've had a lot of bad experiences with mechanics. Well, I've had you. a lot of bad experiences in restaurants. I mean, think of addicts that have a bad experience with drugs. Is all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. Yeah. And I'm like, I've never stopped going to the doctor. I've never stopped going to the mechanic. I never stopped going to, you know, you go to many examples. I never stopped eating out just because something bad happened one time. And so, I mean, that is like the number one reason why, I mean, I'm not going to pass judgment on everyone, but when people say, when Christians say, I don't go to church anymore, that's like the number one reason you get, yeah. is I was hurt of the church. And I don't want to downplay that at all. I take that very seriously, right? Oh, we're not and saying we have we're safeguards. hurt. That's yeah. Not, yeah. And we have, safe, we have we try to have safeguards and take that very seriously that people can get hurt in the church. We try to be transparent with things as they're appropriate and care for people. That's That's a huge burden for me. But I think so often we neglect our own responsibility to say, no, God calls me to the community of believers and to be a member of a church and to submit to leadership. So I'm going to do that even though I've had a bad experience in the past. Absolutely, yeah. And I've, we had some folks recently who've come who've shared like, ah, you know, I just left this church, that church, you know, and I'm kind of feeling hurt. I'm just like, well, just attend and be fed and don't worry too much about jumping in and serving right away. Yeah. But if in six months there's not movement there, I probably want to prod them along, right? You don't want to get in the pattern of just being a consumer. Mm-hmm. But I think it's great to, you know, to come and to engage as you're able to mm-hmm. if you've been hurt. Anyway, that's not really the point of third John. So but he says support missionaries, right? Support missionaries. But there are some that are bad actors. So verse nine, he says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So Diotrephes likes to be first. He disregards apostolic authority. In our day, apostolic authority is contained in Scripture. No. So um, he's, he's denying the authority given by Christ. He's talking wicked nonsense about John in verse 10. He refuses to welcome others. He's dominating the church. These are the patterns that we're seeing. And so he says, uh, verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Mm-hmm. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So he's coming back to the same principle he's going in First John, which is you will know someone by their fruits. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, what pattern of life do they have? That the good person is from God, the evil person is not from God. So observe, look at the way of life, and you can judge a teacher based on their fruit. Yeah. And of course, he's not saying don't be patient if somebody messes up or something. But people that persist in these ways are dangerous and should be avoided. No. All right. So let's get into the book of Jude. It's a great book. Hey, Jude. Jude. <laughs> okay, we're done. Jude is heavily focused on Jude. You guessed no. Heavily focused on false prophets, false teachers. Look at that. It's a very negative book. If you read it, you know a lot of these books at the end here are kind of negative. Yeah. And it, you know, again, we've talked about that. There's a time for that. There's a place for that. Should we bring up the book of Enoch too? With this? Yeah, we will. We will oh, get into the book oh. of Enoch and the assumption of Moses and all that. Cool. So Jude was written. Well, so who is Jude? We have so the name Jude is actually the name Judas, or it could be translated as Judah. Really. And yeah, so that sounds kind of bad. You're like, oh, did Judas Iscariot write a book? But again, just like 
the name Gaius, we said earlier, it, this is a very common name. Mm-hmm. So even in the New Testament, we have quite a few people named Jude or Judas. So there's two, two of the apostles of Jesus are named Judas, right? Judas, Judas the bad one, and then the other Judas. So some people take that to be Jude, um, but pretty heavy agreement that it's a different Jude or Judas, and it's the, the Judas that is mentioned in Mark 6.3, Cross-reference is Matthew 13, 55, but Mark 6, 3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Hmm. And so who are they referring to? Well, they're referring to Jesus, Hmm. right? Isn't Jesus the brother of Jude? So this this Jude is the brother of Jesus, half-brother, of course. Hmm. Because he's not born of God, but he's the he's the son of Mary and Joseph. Right. And Jude introduces himself. Look at the introduction here. So chapter one or verse one of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So well, who's James? James is also the brother of Jesus. He's mentioned in Mark six three, right? As one of the brothers of Jesus. So all of this seems to indicate that the Jude we're talking about here, brother of James, most prominent James in the New Testament after Jesus is James, uh, the brother of Jesus, right? In the book of Acts. Which means... And, and so Jude is probably the brother of Jesus, right? Love it. So, and now why does he not lead with that? That's the question. <laughs> why don't you just lead with that? Hey, dude, um, we asked the same question with it's James, like Peter. though, right? We asked the same question with James. James. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's so true. So why don't you just say, I'm the brother of Jesus. I'm, I'm awesome. Well, again... I think that the fact that he doesn't say this points to the reality that he was probably so well known in the early church that mm-hmm. he didn't have to say that. And again, he's self-effacing. He's humble. He's saying, "I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ." I always think so, about what what kind of stories these guys have about Jesus growing yeah. up. You know, probably some funny stuff. Yeah, probably well, some amazing I bet, stuff. I thought they had like fights, and they like totally thought they were right, and then they realized like he's God. <laughs> like, dang it, I, he was right the whole time. Um, so Jude was written to, again, a more general audience. So verse 1, to those who are called, beloved, and God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Hmm. Uh, I love that. Um, so he's speaking kind of in a general audience. And he seems to be like, he says in verse 4, kind of the reason why he wrote here. He says, for certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord. So that's he's writing to to confront these people. Um, to sorry, verse three is what I was, should have been going for here, but he says to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Mm-hmm. So to fight against those kinds of people, those false teachers. And he says in verse three, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So he's saying, I wanted to be nice, mm-hmm. but I felt it necessary to be a little more pugnacious, yeah. a little more confrontational. And so there's a reason for that because of these certain people who are denying the faith and perverting the grace of God. So he talks about Jesus in verse 5 in a really interesting way. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Mm-hmm. So he connects Jesus here with the exodus and with the judgment afterward. Yeah. So it's interesting because this is a great verse for any any people that would say, oh, Jesus was just a man or just, you know, mm-hmm. wasn't God, whatever. Well, here he's the one who delivered the people. So when God appears in the bush and says, I am the Lord, I am all these things, that was Jesus. Right. 
the angel of the Lord that guide, guided them through the desert, that was Jesus. So it gives us a lot of context in terms of the Old Testament. So it was Jesus who was involved with Exodus in the judgment. Now he starts to talk about these angels and Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 6 and 7. And again, I think this connects to some Old Testament passages we've looked at before. So verse 6 says, And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So I think this refers back to those, again, those angels that Peter mentioned that that um, you know indulged in sexual morality. So this is Gen- Genesis 6, mm-hmm. those angels that the sons of God who married the children of men, I think is in view here. He then references Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire. So the likewise is interesting because it connects back to the angels. Yeah. Angels that engage in sexual morality is kind of weird. Right. Unless you understand Genesis 6 the way that I do. And he says these serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Hmm. So he's, he's pointing to... Um, those who who have been judged, those who have been disobedient to God. And he's going to connect back to a lot of other Old Testament passages, a lot of allusions, and a lot of allusions to extra-biblical writings. So when I say extra-biblical, it doesn't mean that they're like better than the Bible. It means they're outside of the Bible. Yeah, they're historic, you know, letters or books. Yeah. Yeah, so they're real. They're just, yeah. Yeah, so exactly. So there, there are books that, yeah, they were written that probably have a lot of truth in them, but they're not authoritative. Yeah, they're scripture. outside the canon. Yeah. Yes. No. And they've really never been considered as canonical yeah. by, no. by Jews or by Christians. So in verses 8 through 10, well, I think the, some of these, well, did, I don't think Enoch is actually technically apocrypha. I'm not really up to snuff on my apocrypha, my, my Catholic apocrypha. <laughs> is it not? I don't know. It's a good question. Look it, it was. Look it up. Um, yeah. I, I don't remember if it, if it was or not, but those books were written or were added after the Reformation, right? In the 16th century, these apocryphal books, they'd never been seen as part of the canon until the Catholic Church added them to their Bibles later. So that's a, that's a problem. Yeah, it includes, uh, the apocrypha includes Enoch. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. good to know, good yeah. to know. Um, so verses 8 and 10 reference a fight over the body of Moses between Michael and Satan. Mm-hmm. And this comes from a book called the assumption of moses so again that's extra biblical so that there's the first reference um we'll talk in a second about why he references these books so just but we're kind of going through this first in verse 11 he gives some examples of those who were rebellious so he's comparing these false prophets to these rebellious people in the past he talks about cain from genesis chapter 4 balaam from numbers 25 where balaam sends these women in to seduce Israel to engage in sexual morality, and he brings this judgment upon them. And Korah in number 16, right, who rebelled against Moses. So he compares them to these, to these evil figures in the Bible. And he says, he has interesting metaphors for false teachers. Verse 12, he says, these are hidden reefs mm-hmm. at your love feast. So my crazy. understanding, yeah, maybe you understand, you're a shipman more than I am. Well, what I'm happens if you can't lover. see a reef and you run into it? Yeah, <laughs> so you sink. You kill the poor reef guys, reef corals. <laughs> oh, it's like it. No, it tears <laughs> apart your boat. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I don't feel bad for the for the coral. I feel bad for the boat. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so a hidden reef could re- wreck ships, right? Yeah. That's the idea. So make a ship shipwreck. They are shepherds feeding themselves. 
Of course, they should be feeding the flock. They are waterless clouds. We've seen that similar idea before. They promise a lot. They deliver nothing, right? Um, they are wild waves of the sea, verse 13. So they are constantly shifting and changing, wandering stars. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting passage. And then he goes in verse 14, he says, it was, about, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. I love the, the redundancy there. Ungodly things that, in their ungodliness that they've done in an ungodly way. Um, so he's, he references here Enoch and this prophecy from Enoch and now, how do we deal with this? Okay, how do we deal with the fact that this book of the Bible is referencing books that didn't make it into the canon, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people ask this question. So if he's quoting from First Enoch, if he's quoting from the Assumption of Moses, doesn't that mean that these are scriptural books? After all, we, we look and we see how Jesus quotes the Old Testament and that, you know, enforces that that's scripture. Or we see how Peter references Paul. That shows that scripture. We, we build a case that way. So why not this? Well, some of the things are actually pretty obvious. One is that they're never referred to as scripture. Yeah. They're just referenced, right? So if I say in my sermon, in the Lord of the Rings, someone says, well, the Lord of the Rings is scripture. Well, no. Right. That's not how that works, exactly. right? And everyone knows, all the, re- all the listeners know that. Yeah. They understand that. Um, so it never mentions them as scripture. It also doesn't use the familiar intro that would clue you in that it's scripture. So just because it... Uh, it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, oh, the Old Testament is scripture, doesn't mean he doesn't think it's scripture. He'll say something often as it is written, or more explicitly, thus says the Lord, or, right? So, but as it is written is kind of the standard formula in the New Testament for introducing scripture. Yeah. It gives this authority, it draws your attention to it. That's not how it refers to First Enoch or, or uh, the Assumption of Moses. So because of that, there's no claim here. You have to look and see what is the truth claim of Scripture. What is it claiming is true? You can't judge it based on something that's not claiming to be true. Yeah. So it never claims that Scripture. And then just the the uh, mentioning something that's not scriptural, it has other places in Scripture where this happens. Yeah. The most famous one we can think of is Paul on Mars Hill, yeah. where he quotes from their pagan poets. Right. And he says, "What well, one of your own poets says." So because that's in Scripture, it doesn't mean that 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 poet is inspired. Right. It just means Paul spoke like we all speak. Yeah, look at the he reference things, things right? Yeah. So yeah, look and see what is it actually claiming here. So this doesn't present a problem at all. And I think that these these books, some people make the argument that he's basically saying um, he's just kind of referencing what they know, but he's not saying it's true. I think it's very possible he's saying you know, these events that were recorded by these books are true. It's just the book isn't scripture necessarily, and we have that all the time in our world, right? So very interesting. Good questions that you asked, I'm sure. So I'm mean, trying to answer them. So let's look at verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Just some great encouragement here mm-hmm. at the end, right? Great advice. And he says in verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Mm-hmm. So we should live our lives in a way that we're giving the gospel, snatching people out of destruction that they're running toward, do the best we can to be faithful to God's calling for us. And then we end with the best doxology in all of Scripture, I believe. 
Yeah. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. John Piper in his book, Providence has a great observation or meditation on this passage. Hmm. And he's talking about the faithfulness of God, how everything that we have depends upon God being faithful to his promises we take it for granted, right, that God's going to make the sun rise or mm-hmm. keep us as Christians or whatever. And he says this, if you woke up a Christian this morning, this is how you should feel. The same way that Jude's talking about here. You should feel glory, majesty, and dominion and authority have been at work for you while you slept. Mm. You are being kept for a joyful meeting with God has been promised. God is faithful. He will do it. Mm. Amen. Very encouraging words there. So, So clearly... A big focus in these Catholic epistles on the false teachers. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for us to take seriously doctrine, to be obs- observing those in leadership and to see, are they teaching God's truth? As Paul would say, the whole counsel of God. Yeah, We should be carefully observing that, and we should partner with those who are doing the right thing, and we should avoid those who are teaching falsehood. Yeah. Amen. What a yeah. great thing to meditate on. And also a reminder, if you're a teacher... Check yourself to make sure you're teaching yeah. what is in God's Word. That's all. That's right. Thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We will see you next week for our last uh, episode of this season, and we'll look at the book of Revelation. Unless last four episodes. Oh, last four episodes. Excuse yeah, we got me. a whole month. Merry That's Christmas. Right. It's going to be great. That's right. You're going to have plenty of uh, holiday cheer to spread around <laughs> with the coming of the Lord. We'll see you then.